You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome to the Lozano Smith podcast. My name is Joshua Whiteside, senior counsel with the firm uh, and have been with the firm for the last six years and your co-podcast host. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the recent bills that have been passed by the California legislature and get you ready for the 2023 year here. Um, And with me today are two wonderful guests, a familiar face. We've got uh, Ruth. Ruth, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Ruth Mendick. I'm an attorney here in the Fresno office. And um, we're going to focus this morning on the, the new bills that, that are affecting our students. So a couple new things, a couple new developments. So we're looking forward to co- covering those with you this morning. Thank you. And then uh, a new voice, Nisha. Hi, everyone. My name is Nisha. Good morning. I'm also with the Fresno office, and I'm very excited to be on the podcast my first time, so let's see how this goes. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and just jump into it, but I guess um, I, I guess I should make a quick note before we do that. Um, we certainly know that the governor has uh, declared that there's going to be an end to the COVID-19 state of emergency uh, effective February 28th, uh, 2023. So in light of that, you know, we're looking at these bills kind of as a return to, to some sense of normalcy as much as we can, even though we know that there is still uh, COVID-19 around, I think the access to, to vaccines and just the, the sort of temperature, uh, so to speak, <laughs> politically and, uh, and uh, amongst the public has kind of shifted on dealing with COVID in, in that state. So we're now shifting back to kind of education and the school day is normal. And I think these bills reflect that. So, you know, maybe we should talk about another hot topic, uh, which is uh, student threats, uh, you know, that we saw prior to the pandemic, a, a lot of uh, students making threats that resulted in uh, schools evacuating uh, their buildings. And certainly there's been school shootings, uh, the, the concern related to those. Um, what does SB 906 tell school districts they need to do in response to student threats starting now? That's a great question, Josh. So in July of 2022, Governor Newsom signed Senate Bill 906, which added two new mandates for school districts. I'll start with the mandate related to reporting threats to law enforcement. The law now requires district staff that's working with students in grades 6 to 12 to report actual or perceived homicidal threats to law enforcement. And so essentially, district staff that become aware of a homicidal threat have a duty to investigate that threat, which is essentially making the administration office aware of the threat. And after there's been a due diligence investigation, the threat must be reported to law enforcement if there is reasonable suspicion that the threat can be carried out. So, and this is regarding homicidal threats made by students, right? Not just any threat of violence or threat to fight another student or a staff member. That's correct. The statute makes clear that the mandate focuses on homicidal threats. And um, in terms of how this report is done, um, what what do we recommend that, that uh, staff do when they hear this type of threat or see this type of threat? Um, we would, if it, there is a teacher or another school staff on site, we would recommend that they report the threat to the administration office, make uh, the administration aware of the threat, and that from there, the administration begin an investigation to determine if the threat is credible. 
Got it. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, you certainly don't want like squad cars randomly showing up <laughs> with the uh, principal not being aware of it, right? So, no, I think there's big fears regarding how um, or what can happen if staff, you know, immediately reports it to law enforcement without contacting the administration office because it can create chaos. And I think the purpose of the bill is to help school safety. Okay. So if there if there's now this requirement to report homicidal threats, um, what type of evidence is needed in order for this uh, reporting requirement to actually become a mandate? Well, when the report to law enforcement goes out, it must include copies of any documentation or other evidence associated with the threat or perceived threat. And so anything that could show that the threat could be legitimately carried out. Okay. And does this apply to uh, employees and um, board members as well? That's right. You are absolutely right. Um, And and then, Nisha, I believe there was an age range uh, that applies to. Is that correct? That is correct. So the statute applies to, um, or the bill applies to district staff that has regular contact with students in any any grade 6 to 12 as part of a middle school or high school. Okay, so 6 to 12 as part of a middle school or high school. So if you've got a K-8 elementary school or K-6 elementary school, it seems like this doesn't apply to them. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, and then um, my understanding is that uh, AB 906 uh, also deals with uh, firearm safety at people's homes. Normally we talk about school-related issues, but how does this how does this relate to schools about firearm safety? So... The bill now requires in the annual notification that school districts provide to parents that there be information included regarding storage of firearms and California's child access prevention laws. Um, Essentially what the bill states is that the California Department of Education is to create model language and that model language has to be created by July 1st of 2023. So beginning the 23-24 school year, um, schools are required to provide in their annual notice this information related to firearm safety. And I I believe there's like an immunity clause associated with this particular notice. Can you explain that? Yeah, as long as the districts are using the language developed by the California Department of Education, um, the schools will have immunity from any information that's been provided. Got it. So, okay, so it's like if an if a accident happens, that parent was following the firearm uh, safety guidelines provided in this model notice, they couldn't then come after the district essentially and say, you know, we, we followed exactly what you said and something bad happened and now we want to file a claim against the district. So it seems like this immunity is preventing that sort of claim, right? Right. Okay. All right. Um, uh, Ruth, what do we have for uh, ab- school absences? So this year we have a new reason why uh, students can be uh, absent from school and be excused. This SB 955 adds another section under 48205, which lists all the uh, reasons why students can be excused from school. And this, uh, this bill adds that students can be absent for a, quote, civic or political event. And the statute defines that uh, to include voting, poll working, strikes, public commenting, candidate speeches, political or civic forums, and town halls. So there's a lot of, you know, discretion within those, but at least we have a list of things that are going to be um, authorized under the civic or political event. 
So students can now, those who are 18, can get time and excuse time off from school to go vote if they'd like to, um, you know, work in, work at the polls if they want to, attend events that um, are related to candidate spe speeches or, you know, other uh, debates and that type of thing. So they have some opportunities to do that. Would this include a protest, attendance at a protest? It doesn't say that specifically. Um, I suppose they could try to claim that it it uh, falls under the pub public commenting. That could be a, a possibility, but it's not, you know, protest isn't one of the authorized listed events that fall under the civic or political events. So there may be some discretion involved in granting a absence for that. Interesting. So if they if they wanted to go to, like, say, the Republican National uh, Convention or Democratic National Convention and support their, their candidate of choice or something like that, and they're going to be gone for three days, it sounds like they get at least one day excused. What about if they wanted to have more than one day excused? If they want more than one day, there's a language in the statute that allows that to happen under the discretion of the school administrator. So it's not an absolute no, but they would have to... Um, they would have to get permission to make that happen. And also one of the qualifications on this absence is that they have to be provide notice in advance. So they can't show up at a, you know, attend a protest and then later on, you know, want to uh, have that absence excused. They have to have asked for it in advance. So. Boy, this uh, list of excused absences is growing. It is. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, you'd think we'd want the kids in school after COVID, right? But... You, you would think so, yes. Okay. Well, moving on, uh, let's talk about homeless uh, youth. And um, my understanding that uh, we've got some changes to something that we've talked about, I think, on this podcast before, the housing questionnaire. Correct. Yeah. What I mean, one of the, you know, even though we're kind of like, coming out of the pandemic, obviously we're still feeling a lot of the effects. And one of them, of course, is the effect on homelessness. And so um, there's been a couple significant grants that have been um, issued in response to that. One was part of the American Rescue Plan of 2021, where there was like $800 million that was designated to support the needs of, of homeless students. And under that, um, state agencies and and LEAs must use the funds to help identify homeless students, provide them with services, and to help them participate fully in school. In addition to that, and separate, is the McKinney-Vinto Homeless Assistance Act, which of course we've been, uh, we've been working with the McKinney-Vinto Act for some time, but this provided um, also some additional grants to help students succeed in school. So as a result of both of these grant programs, then um, schools are have some additional requirements that they must meet in order to help the homeless students. The first of those comes under AB 2375. Currently, of course, um, districts are still required to provide housing questionnaires to parents and unaccompanied youth for the purpose of identifying how many homeless students do we have in the district. But under this new law, under AB 2375, Schools have to make sure that that questionnaire that they're using follows the best practices that have been developed by CDE in terms of that questionnaire. So for districts that don't use that questionnaire already, it is available on the CDE website. Um, they have a model housing questionnaire there for districts to use. So under this new law, now they're required to make sure that whatever housing questionnaire they use 
follows that CDE model. So that's something to um, make sure that districts are looking at to make sure that they're following those rules to comply with the CDE model policy. The second um, bill that came up under um, as a result of this new funding is AB 408. And this addresses more the updates to the homeless education programs and policies that are related to the McKinney-Vinto policies. So as we know, currently districts have to immediately enroll a, a homeless student uh, who seeks enrollment. You, don't you can't wait and delay looking for immunization records or anything else. You have to immediately enroll the student. And districts must currently you know, provide public notice of educational rights of the homeless students and they have to have best practices um, in place in order to identify the homeless students so they can be uh, assisted at school. Now under this new law, under AB 408, um, districts must also have um, homeless education programs that are also are consistent with CDE's website and other resources. So again, under the McKinney-Vinto um, provisions, we need to refer to what is available on the CDE website. Also, AB 408 requires um, that districts update their homeless education policies every three years. So districts should put that on a calendar to make sure that they're getting those updated every so often to make sure that they're current and consistent with what the, what the current law is. And finally, um, LEA liaisons that districts have for their homeless and unaccompanied youth are now required to provide training at least annually to their certificated and classified employees who work with the students experiencing homelessness. So there's an additional kind of outreach and education program that's included as part of this AB 408 in order to educate everyone in the district about the program. And wow. then- I, I was gonna say that's a, that's a, lot, of, <laughs> a lot of updates there. So we've got new training, we've got a three-year policy review, we've got an updated housing questionnaire, is there anything else that um, we have to be thinking about with homeless and unaccompanied youth? Well, I would just say um, another part of this bill is to require CDE to provide info and training to the LEAs, and it also requires the CDE to implement a plan to monitor how well districts are doing on um, complying with all these rules. So we need to take them seriously, obviously, um, need to make sure that we're doing what we need to do in order to assist these students and help them succeed, but also know that the uh, CDE will be uh, checking in to make sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. So all, a lot of good reasons to make it happen. Okay. All right. Well, I've got a couple bills of my own uh, okay. to talk about. I uh, hope you guys don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's start with uh, something you know that I've been following, which is, of course, all the COVID-19 news. And uh, we have one bill that um, became law that, that talks about uh, a COVID-19 testing plan. It's Senate Bill 1479, and it says that uh, LEAs, uh, local educational agencies, must adopt a COVID-19 testing plan or adopt the CDPH testing framework that came out just before the holidays and publish that on their agency website. Now, interestingly, the, the bill itself reads that it's contingent, this requirement is contingent on funds being made available in the Annual Budget Act or some other statute. And uh, so far, uh, we're just kind of on pins and needles waiting for that to occur. So as we get closer to June and the adoption of the Budget Act, I know that we're looking at 
the uh, trailer bill, uh, as of the date of this recording, uh, we've just seen a little sneak peek of that and haven't yet fully digested uh, everything that's going to be going into that. But um, it'll be interesting to see if in light of the move away from the state of emergency, whether or not this requirement will actually take effect or not. Is it possible that, you know, if it's not funded, then that it will just disappear could just fade away and and this may be a meaningless uh minute of your life but but in the event that uh uh it does come to fruition we'll we'll be sure to update you all through our client news brief process or uh, maybe in a follow-up comment on a subsequent podcast stay tuned (laughs) and then i've got another sort of uh health slash medical related bill that i that caught my eye assembly bill 2329 Uh, which allows for local educational agencies to enter into an MOU with a nonprofit eye examiner uh, to supplement their existing vision tests and screenings that districts already do. Um, They do when a new student comes into the district for the first time in a California elementary school, uh, when they first enroll kindergarten, and then at grades uh, two, five, and eight. And so this is not replacing any of those uh, screenings or tests, but it was allowing uh, districts to kind of supplement those existing requirements with this new uh, nonprofit eye examiner uh, coming in through an MOU to examine kids. Interestingly, uh, this sort of supplemental uh, option requires that if you are going to offer it, that you allow for parents to opt out of it uh, and that CDE will create a model opt-out form for this. So I'm not really, I'm not aware of any sort of controversy or people going up to public comment and saying we need more vision screenings or Mm -hmm. we need opt-out for vision screening. So I'm not quite sure where this uh, bill originated from or or what issues started all of this, but certainly the idea of having uh, more vision screenings and uh, more of uh, this connection between school and health-related issues, especially at that elementary age, is something to keep a, keep an eye on, so to speak. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, you know, I could see um, that, you know, the more that students are on screens and you know are having to look at computers, you know, perhaps that's that could be a reason why they're wanting to check on their, you know, vision more, but. Um, can also see that there there's the possibility of you know wanting to make sure that the student record information is confidential to you that's a that's a great point you know I didn't think about that and you'd think I would because I've been wearing glasses since I was in second grade and okay. been looking at screens <laughs> very right. practically all my life so right. maybe there's a correlation there I'm not maybe. sure <laughs> Uh, Well, another bill I wanted to also talk about um, is SB 997. Um, This is something uh, kind of like that testing plan one is not a current requirement or requirement starting January 1, 2023. This this bill is uh, talking about a requirement that starts July 1, 2024. Uh, If you can believe that that's right around the corner, uh, about a year and a half from now. And uh, this bill is about parent advisory committees that often will give feedback and input into the development of the LCAP and various other programs going on at districts and county offices. And so for um, any agency that is serving middle school or high school students, 
this bill will require next summer, starting next summer, uh, that at least two students be included in the Parent Advisory Committee for at least a renewable one-year term. And if you don't want to do that, they do give you another option, which is to create and establish a Student Advisory Committee um, and to have uh, basically a group of students uh, give input and feedback formally to the LCAP development process. So interesting requirement. I know that many districts have already shifted to including student input through student senates and through uh, maybe um, ASB or student board members on uh, different various um, developments at the board level uh, and use of and kind of allocating funds and that sort of thing for different programs. So this is just another sort of thing that uh, districts will need to be mindful of and uh, get into compliance with. Uh, on top of their existing uh, avenues of, of getting student feedback. All right, well, uh, now that we're getting, speaking of, of the summer, um, we're getting, believe it or not, closer to the end of the school year. And uh, with that comes our, our good, fun graduation ceremonies. Nisha, why don't you tell us about um, what's new in the world of graduation? Yes, absolutely. So there is a case that actually came out in December of 2022. I do think that it's um, a case that is on the funner side, as you mentioned. And essentially, there's a high school in Arizona that had a graduation policy that prohibited schools from decorating their graduation caps. A student at that high school wanted to decorate her cap according to her religious practice, um, which was wearing an eagle feather on her cap during the high school graduation. The district denied the request, um, basically stating that their policy didn't allow for any exceptions. The student still arrived at the high school graduation and she was wearing um, the eagle feather on her cap and she was prohibited from attending the ceremony. Um, at the same time, there was another student that wore a breast cancer awareness sticker on their graduation cap, and uh, this individual was allowed to participate in the ceremony. And so the student with the eagle feather, she brought a claim against the district stating that the district had violated her free exercise of religion and her First Amendment rights. And essentially, the district, the district court, the Ninth Circuit, agreed with the student that um, the policy hadn't been applied fairly. And so they stated that because the policy on its face was neutral in that it stated that students were prohibited from decorating their caps, but in its application, the policy was not neutral. And so um, the district cited in favor of the student. And, and I think... So it's interesting because it, the judge here was looking at these rules being applied consistently across the district, uh, not just at one particular school. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so both the students, um, they each went to two separate high schools, but the high schools were within the district. The and same district. The same district. Mm -hmm. And and you know, wait a second. You might be thinking this was a legislative update. Why are we talking about case law in our legislative update, Nisha? Um, what? How does this? And this seems awfully familiar. You know, talking about eagle feathers at graduation. Isn't there something in California? There's a California statute that applies here. There is a California statue, and in California, students are allowed to decorate according to religious, ceremonial, or cultural adornments at their school graduations. However, I think this the big takeaway from this case is that the rules still need to be applied fairly and equally across the board, and um, it also shows that California is in alignment with how other states are operating. Right. Okay. So basically, this case, even though it was in Arizona, 
it was in the Ninth Circuit, so it's further supporting this California statute that's already in effect, already applies, and uh, many of our agencies have already been implementing that. So, um, you know, continue to do so, right? <laughs> but be thinking about, I think, um, making sure that it's being consistently applied across your agency, um, certainly at the high school level with other high schools, they have the kind of the same process, same way of uh, adjudicating these issues. Ruth, do you have any an experience with the uh, with the graduation adornments? Well, we've you know we've seen the statute in California kind of evolve, um, and at one point there was really no authorization to use the cultural uh, adornments like that that Nisha referenced. Um, but now those are specifically authorized uh, under the code. Um, and districts have, we have seen districts kind of implement uh, some kind of a process where students who want to do something uh, as part of their graduation cap, you make a request of some kind and that that is reviewed on a district-wide basis so that they can make sure that they're applying it consistently. One of the concerns is making sure, like what happened in this case, that a student at one high school is allowed to do something, but a student at another high school the similar request is not allowed to do that. So that kind of process and and asking for a district-wide review helps to make sure that uh, the, the rules are being applied consistently and that all students are being treated the same way. So as we saw in this case, it's for, that's important and that was kind of the, the crux of the whole issue. All right, well, we've talked a lot about process, policy, testing plans, uh, eye exams. Uh, dealing with firearms and our, our parent notices and responding to student threats. And gosh darn it, allowing these students to leave for a day to go politicking. My goodness. <laughs> well, Ruth, Nisha, thank you so much for uh, providing this great update on our world of students and what our educators need to know to provide for them uh, with all these different facets. And uh, as always seems to be the case these days, our educational agencies will need to be Ready for change? The best way to do that is to sign up for our firm's client news briefs and listen to the Lozano Smith podcast. We also encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on the uh, bills and cases that we talked about today. Additionally, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Well, now we know that with the Education Omni Bill uh, having just been issued yesterday, or at least the first draft, We know that we have more to talk about in a couple months, so we'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, Its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.